So what would a peaceful world actually look like? What kind of resources and support would countries need to actually make peace possible? Sometimes it's the unlikely people that ask the most interesting questions. Today we are talking to a business person come philanthropist whose question about peace led to a life's work. Today's Changemaker Chat is with Steve Killalea. Steve is not your traditional peacemaker. He's one of Australia's most successful businessmen. But his own journey to make a difference around poverty has seen him build a new approach to peace that is written about in a new book, Peace in the Age of Chaos. We talk about his approach to peace and the kind of positive social resources that it takes to make it happen. We talk about systems theory and how it helps us understand how you might build peace. We even have a debate about whether Steve's vision is radical enough to bring about the peace we need at this time. You don't often get to speak to someone who found the world of business wanting, so he decided to become a changemaker. So, let's go. I'm Amanda Tattersall. Welcome to Changemaker Chats. Conversations with people changing the world. Changemakers also produces episodes that are feature stories about social change campaigns. Changemakers is supported by the Sydney Policy Lab at the University of Sydney. They break down barriers between researchers, policymakers, and community campaigners so we can build change together. Check them out at sydney.edu.au backslash policy lab. And you can sign up to our email list at changemakerspodcast.org. Okay, Steve, welcome to the Changemakers. My pleasure to be here, Amanda. It's delightful. And and as we'll probably reveal throughout the podcast, we've realised in preparing for this interview that we've got a few things in common, including our mutual interest and support of GetUp in its early years. So it's lovely to, to meet you. Yeah, it was quite interesting, wasn't it? Also, the time we both spent in Africa, I thought, was a, a big overlap as well. That's true. So we have got lots to talk about today. So the first thing I'd like to get you to talk about with our listeners and tell our listeners a bit about, I have had the pleasure of of speed reading A Peace in the Age of Chaos, a book, your book that's just come out. And in doing so, I found out quite a lot about what you do and how you do it. But so so our listeners are, are up to speed. You know, can you tell us in your own words what you do that makes yourself a change maker, to use our language, or, you know, to make impact in the world? Right. Well, I guess do it in a number of ways. Like first off, it was sort of through my business enterprises because my program background was actually programming and developing computer programs. So I'd always try and focus on something which didn't hadn't been done. And that in itself, even though it's business, is making change. So change maker to me is just simply it makes change. The other one is through the, I guess, the second area, and I won't spend too much time on the business side, but if we look at the second area is through my family foundation. Uh, and it works with the poorest of the poor and it specialises in Eastern Central Africa and Northeast Asia like Burma, Laos, Cambodia, Vietnam, around there. 
And so it's done about 200 projects in the developing world now, and the direct beneficiaries out of that are about 3.6 million people. So it's a, it's a, it's a reasonable size one. And we're, lately we've been putting a lot of emphasis on trying to look at ways of regenerating environments, particularly looking at water, but new and unique ways of capturing water, and then a new technique called uh, farmer-managed natural regeneration, which is a mouthful. But in Niger, it's the only country in the world which has got an increasing foliation, and that's simply because of using these techniques now for 20 years. So, so in that area, sort of water and natural regeneration were big on. Uh, and then there's obviously what I'm talking about here tonight. The main thing is the Institute for Economics and Peace. And that's about understanding the intersection between business, peace and economics with special emphasis to measure peace and then to ascribe an economic value to changes in peace. So peace is where I literally spend 80% of my time these days, Amanda. <laughs> a peacemaker as a change maker. <laughs> yeah, something like that anyway. <laughs> yeah, yeah, yeah. So it's interesting to us, you know, so you work have worked for changing business within the charitable sector globally, like in the aid and development sector, and as a peacemaker. I like the idea of you as a peacemaker. What I am interested in, what we're always interested in is why would you engage in all this? You're a very successful business person um, who didn't necessarily need to do any of these good works, but you have, you're not, you know, you're different to, to others. Why did you choose this different path? Well, to be honest, I've only ever done what I felt like doing. Okay, that sounds a bit crazy because I quite often get the question, well, gee, Steve, what motivates you to do all this? And when I look at it deeply, I think it's something, I don't know, it's something on the creative side of me. It's something about, because all the things I've done, I sort of develop something new. Uh, it's about the innovation side, developing something new. It's being able to find the entrepreneur in me, wanting to take the, take a concept or an idea and grow it into something. So there's all those kind of things going on going on in there. But if we look and we break it down, well, computing, I got into that simply because I decided to, you know, I wanted to settle down, have a career and thought, where would I be, do something which is interesting I'd be good at? And computing came to top of mind and turned out to be the right choice. Uh, after making a whole lot of money, because of my early days, I'd spent a lot of time in the developing world. I had a feeling for poverty and I had a friend at where the do time. You, wait, just on that, just on that. Where do you think that came from? Why were you worried about poverty? I'm not sure that every successful oh. business person is. Sure. Okay. Well, look, in the early part of my life, very, very early 20s, like 21, 22 maybe, around that era, I spent quite a bit of time in Indonesia surfing. And I used to stay in these Losmans, as they were called, and I'd stay with a local family. Uh, it cost me 40 cents a night and 20 cents for each meal because obviously we're trying to live on a limited budget and just surf as long as we could. <laughs> so and, and so I got to know these families because I'd spend, living, spend months living with them and you get to know them really quite well. And like you, and what, what touched me was like they get a little, little bit of a cold and everyone would get fearful where we'd never think about it in the West. That's simply because none of them had enough money to buy any drugs. If any of them got sick, then most of the time that was it, unless it was some simple antibiotics. Wow. So that hobby, right, as, as when you're a young surfer, actually really changed your life 
as a business person? Look, gave me a uh, gave me a focus looking f- looking forward. Okay, I guess I understood poverty. Now, when I set up the foundation, we then turned around and started to look at working in uh, projects in Australia. So it could have been Aboriginal causes. Homelessness is a bit of thing I'm passionate about in Australia. But as we started to look at the bang for the buck for a quarter of a million, you don't, it doesn't go very far. Now. I also at the time had a friend who was the treasurer for World Vision. So he took me up to Laos, which then was a closed country. So I'm in this country with almost no other foreigners. It's going back 3,000 years in time because at that stage you could drive down the main highway, which was only a dirt road, most of it, and you wouldn't see one house with a glass window in it. That's how far Laos they took it back when they went back to a, a communist regime an agricultural communist regime. And so as we put, came in and we we're putting sort of some of the first water wells in there and like it just blew me away. I think we gave water to something like 20, somewhere between 20 and 40,000 people early on. Reduced the death rate for children under five from 18% to 12% and knocked out one third of all disease because it was waterborne uh, and it was less than $20 a head. And after that, I was hooked. Yeah. <laughs> so it, it's, it's a, the bang for the buck's just tremendous. Yeah, the impact. And so then, you know, so so you're doing charitable works. You set up a, a charity, you start doing this great stuff in Africa and um, in parts of Asia. Then why peace? Like why did you jump to that? <laughs> well, I'm the most accidental peace person you're ever going to meet, Amanda. So I was in North East Kivu in the Congo, which is literally one of the most violent places in the world over a continuous period of time. And it started to wonder what was the opposite of all these stressed out countries I was spending time in. Uh, what were the most peaceful nations in the world and what did they look like? Search the internet, couldn't find a thing. That stage, I knew a guy called Stuart Reese, which was running the Sydney Peace Foundation. So I went into him and I said, "Look, can you tell me the most peaceful nations in the world?" He started to rattle some off the top of his head. I said, "Ah, oh, you're just making it up. Where's the list?" And he says, "Oh, give me, give me a week. I'll go away." Three weeks later, he comes back and says, "I can't find anything." So I thought, "Wow, uh, uh, fancy! You can't actually rank the nations of the world by their peacefulness." So. What I did then is I had a friend who used to run a, a part of the Economist Group in London, uh, talked to him about the idea. He said, well, look, I'll give you an introduction to some people over there. They're good at doing indexes. So I shot off over there, met them. Then from a, you know, someone else got some introductions to the four or five leading leading a, a, a peace research groups in the world. They all thought it was a good idea. They weren't planning on doing it. And I had someone who could cons- basically construct an index, so I was away. Uh, but <laughs> then I got 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 to the end of it, and I, th- I was originally just going to put it in a university somewhere. But got to the got to the end of it and thought, well, this is a pretty good idea. I just don't want to sit on it. So then I decided to hire a PR company to publish, sort of to uh, popularise the research, and it just took off. I think we got a, a two billion media impressions on the first launch. Something phenomenal, blew me away. Blew me away. And then I started to think, and so. It's this, yeah, this part really became important because this, this to me was profound and this is the launch into the book. Because if a simple businessman such as myself can be walking through Africa and wonder what are the most peaceful nations in the world and hasn't been done, then how much do we understand peace? If you can't measure something, 
can you truly understand it? If you can't measure it, how do you know whether your actions are helping you or hindering you in achieving your goals? You probably don't. If the goals are marginal, if they're right out one way or the other, yes, but all that fine nuancing without measurement just disappears. So starting to think about it, I thought, wow, that's really quite profound because it's true. It's absolutely true. Now, as I was thinking about peace, and if we look at the major challenges facing humanity today, they're global in nature. They're things like ever-decreasing biodiversity, full use of the fresh water on the planet, climate change, overpopulation, and many, many, many more. And unless we have a world which is basically peaceful, we'll never get the levels of trust, cooperation, or inclusiveness necessary to solve these problems. Therefore, what I saw was peace as a prerequisite for the survival of society as we know it in the 21st century. And that is different than any other epoch in human history. In the past, peace may have been the domain of the altruistic, but in the 21st century, it's firmly grounded in everyone's self-interest. And I think that was that, that's, that was the catalyst and the light for me to actually sort of really, really then go hard at this because I, I could and then I could see, yeah, I could see so much opportunity. The other thing too is because we had the index, we could start to actually now count the occurrences of violence. And from that, then we were able to start to develop metrics to actually measure peace, to be able to describe, describe an economic value to it. And that, that, that piece of work's been profound too. That's and what I hear in your story is how you were able to harness the skills that you had in business and apply them to this question around peace because not every person who wants to approach the question of peace thinks of coming up with measurements, quantifiable as opposed to qualifiable, you know, like number measurements, but you did. And that's in some ways it sort of speaks to the sort of breakthrough piece that you've had with your index that sort of sets it apart from what other people had done. It's it's actually embedded in your own background, really. Yes. Well, look, I guess that entrepreneurial journey, it's a, I didn't realise how much of my actual business background I'd bought into it till five years after I'd actually got going. Seems like massively unself-aware, doesn't it? But that's that's the reality. And so if you think of it, coming from a computer background, so the first thing, she got products and you, you roll them out with regular releases, okay? And you get something out which is good enough to get into the market. You want to get in early, get feedback on it, then modify it go. And that's pretty much the approach we took at the the Institute for Economics and Peace. So we've got a whole range of products now we bring out yearly. So the Global Peace Index is the first one. We've got the Global Terrorism. It's an annual event. In fact, we're just in the process of uh, doing uh, this year's one now. And we've got an ecological threat register. We bring that out. We've got the economic cost of violence of the global economy. We bring that out every second year. And we've also got another thing called positive peace, which I know we'll get round to in the end of this interview, but it, it's it's phenomenal. So that's the attitudes, institutions and structures which create and sustain peaceful societies. So each of them we do as a product. And I think the other thing which comes to me from businesses, I think globally. I don't actually think locally. So I may live in Sydney, Australia, but I don't think that way. Uh, uh, my whole life's been 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 about travelling the world and said I'm working on a global stage. So in terms of the institute, I didn't. I just thought universally. I didn't think domestically. That's sprung sprung from a background. I think the final thing is bringing in sort of a how can I put it a whole lot of marketing skills. 
and production skills. And so the ability to sort of be able to communicate concepts clearly and simply. We've put so much effort into being able to communicate our work simply and clearly. And again, that comes back from having to work in a business background where you really had to take very complex products and put them into simple language. So I guess there's some there's some of the things I can see there, Amanda. Some of the things, and like a lot of people with I think on the entrepreneurial side of it, uh, don't get it. A good entrepreneur just can get up and he'll just follow what's happening in front of him, okay, and or her, or her. yeah, <laughs> and get and get the and 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 work their way through it work their way through it. Yeah. A lot of people think you come up with a five-year business plan, which you then execute and stick to uh, meticulously to get your growth. But the reality is the things in the environment are always changing. The great entrepreneurs just have the ability to duck and weave through the changing environment. It's not they don't have a strategy or plan, but they you know, realise the, uh, the limitations. I think that had a lot to do with the early success of the Institute as well. Mm, mm, holding those things in tension, what's right in front of you and where you want to go and being able to weave your way through the two. Now, let's talk about peace <laughs> because it feels like that's a that's sort of a key contribution and I'm interested um, in your approach. In your book, you make the, the sort of initial proposition that, you know, peace is not the inverse of war. It's not the inverse of violence. There's something else going on when you talk about peace. So so why don't you tell us what that is? What is going on with peace that's not the inverse of war? <laughs> so I'm going to start with, and all this gets pretty hard, but I'm going to start with an analogy which comes out of the book. So what I want you to think about is health. Great breakthroughs in pathology. Neither of us are going to die of a heart attack young get starting to really cure cancer. So the study of pathology is really important, okay, really important. However, through pathology, you're never going to understand what it takes to stay well, have a fit and vibrant life. You're only going to learn that from studying healthy people. You're not going to understand it from studying people on their deathbed. So it's things like good diet, right exercise, good mental disposition. Yeah, you're not going to learn any of that off someone on their deathbed. And peace is pretty much the same. We spend a lot of time focusing on conflict, okay? What have we got to do to stop conflict, okay? What have we got to do to stop conflict? But study of peace does actually give different results because countries at different stages of peacefulness need different things. And there's certain qualities which are associated in very highly peaceful societies. Unless you study them, you're not actually going to pick up on them all. And so I think that's the profound difference. It's a bit like flourishing to fixing up the wounds on your body. Mm, mm. There's a, like when I was reading that section of of your book, it made me think there's a book by Bernard Crick in defence of politics, which you probably have come across in 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 your in your work, and he talks about that. He also does this thing between peace and and um, war, and he says the opposite of war isn't peace; it's politics. Now, I know that that's not exactly the language that you would use, but what I think it's interesting is that it's that. What does a society need to negotiate? 
wellness, you know, and and that's in, in a sense what you're, I feel like you're getting at when you're identifying the different, the sort of wheel of peace and sort of these indicators of, of a positive peace, which we'll get onto in a second, the sort of um, indicators of, of vibrance and wellness that are much more important than just anti-war or anti-violence. Yeah, I, the, uh, yeah. Politics, mm, I think someone can, you can always say, say everything's the art of negotiation, okay? So, like, I guess that's what he's saying. And to extent, yeah, peace is about that. Like, part of it's having societies which are adaptable and capable of, a, of being able to process change and adjust through it. So that's one, one, one and it's same things which create adaptability also create for resilience, and they're sort of two of them are very, very closely aligned concepts. So from that angle, maybe, but it's a, not the characterization I would have used, Amanda. No, I appreciate that. <laughs> well, you say tomato and I'll say um, Bernard Crick, you know, <laughs> but I think you're okay. in, in a similar place. <laughs> so, so, so okay, that's sort of the framework for peace, right? So, so run us through this way in which you understand positive peace and how it could be manifest in the world. So if peace is, is, is requires a whole bunch of characteristics to exist, you frame it as positive peace. Tell us more about what positive peace means. Sure. Okay. So the thing which really makes positive peace stand out or our version of it is it's all empirically derived. So generally, peace is seen as something which is a moral argument. Okay, and so part of establishing the Institute for Economics and Peace was to move beyond the concept of a moral argument and start to see what are the qualities which are associated with peace and then see where we go. Okay, and that's profoundly different. So we start with about 50,000 data sets, indexes, attitudinal surveys. We used a bit under 25,000 probably in this analysis I'm about to describe. Then we take the global peace index, we take 10, these days we take 10 years worth of history. And now what we do is we do statistical analysis against all these other data sets, indexes, and attitudinal surveys to find out the ones which are most statistically significantly associated with positive peace. We then use, so sorry, associated with the Global Peace Index. And what we do then is we take it and then we've got ways of being able to clumper clump these things together, get rid of duplicates or questions which are just about the same. And now we clump them together uh, using further statistical techniques and we come up with this topology of eight different features, which are you know, we call the pillars of positive peace. So at this point, the thing's simplified down, okay? The reason it's simplified down, it's so people like me and you can understand it, okay? Uh, uh, unless you can get something which is a framework, people can wrap their head around quickly, it's going to be very, very difficult to actually explain it across. Don't know how many bubble diagrams I've seen with lines of flow trying to describe conflict. And there'll be 200 lines, 40 to 60 different bubbles in there with all the different things. And you look at it and you go, well, great. <laughs> Can't remember that. So we've just got this down to a simple simple topology, eight different pillars. And then we combined it with concepts from systems thinking because societies operate as systems and people say that, yeah, yeah, but very few of our decisions in societies take into account the systemic effects and certainly politicians do not at all. They'll talk to it, but in any of their decision-making, they do not 
think about it. And so this concept of using systems thinking, which springs out particularly out of biology, combined the positive piece, gives a radically or transformal way of being able to now come about and look at societies and the way societies develop. But okay, so we can create peace. That's great. But what was profound, what really blew us away in this exercise was once we'd got what the positive piece was and the eight different pillars, we could now turn that around into another index and measure countries. And so can we now see whether the qualities of getting them to move towards or away from peace. So we've now actually got a measure of the progression of society. And the thing which was even more profound than that was once we then had this index, we started to see what else did it actually relate to? What else was it, let's say, statistically associated with? Because we use maths for all the stuff we do. Uh, that way it's not our view or our judgments. It, it's derived in, <laughs> in an impartial way, if you like. Yeah. A lot of it does confirm what most people think creates peace, but uh, it, it does come out somewhat different. What we found then is that positive peace was associated with so many other things which we think are important in life, like higher per capita income or higher GDP growth, better environments for business, uh, better measures of the, on well-being and happiness, uh, better measures on performance of the ecological uh, measures for the environment, better measures of inclusion as well. And so what we could see, and there was dozens of these things, dozens of them. And so what we could see from that is what we'd found with positive peace actually described an optimal environment for human potential to flourish. And when you get into it more detail, you can see why. You can see why, because peace is a byproduct of an environment. It's not a state in itself. So I'm wondering for our listeners who haven't got into the book yet, um, paint us a picture of, you know, you've, you've run through a bunch of concepts and their interrelationships. I'm wondering if you want to talk about Iceland as an example, it comes out of the book, or, or another example that might be a favourite, but where you have seen the, the measurements of positive peace over time evidencing a more peaceful society, like how, how that how that relationship between those indicia and peacefulness have, have played out for, the, I guess, the well-being of people in the community. So I guess one of them would be East Timor or Timor-Leste, depending on how you want to say it. That would be an example of a country came out of a colonial rule under Indonesia and from that point it was it was a really split society but you but it had a lot it's small it had a lot of outside help and you could see that so you could see the measures of positive peace uh, go up and and regenerate in that really quite well. You've got other examples like Cote d'Ivoire to come out of conflict and being able to build their positive peace well. But a lot of the time, this the history of this goes can go back a long while, and I think Iceland's a great example. So Iceland's the most peaceful place in the world. Now many people crack the joke. Well, that's because it's so cold; no one goes outside. But there's a lot more to it than that. A lot more to it than that. So if you go back and like created by the Vikings, but if you go back, the whole of the society used to be really quite peaceful. The last major killing they had in Iceland goes back to 1063 or something like that, uh, when they had about 100 people killed in a fight. That's, that's it. 
That's it. It's got the oldest parliament in the world, which even more surprising, which was about 10-something or other. So, yeah, yeah. So which is really quite a, uh, remarkable. So the oldest parliament. And the country itself is so inhospi- inhospitable. It's, it's really, really, really hard to imagine. So if you're out there and you're wandering around, storms come in all the time. So you could go and take shelter in anyone's house anywhere for hundreds of years in the country. It's lost now as you sort of get cars and modern cities. But it used to be this welcoming of the stranger because everyone had to depend on everyone else for survival because it was such a tough environment. So I think a lot of those things go back into this. Go, but if we're looking at it, it's, this is going back centuries and centuries and centuries. And so if you come around to the global financial crisis, Iceland had the worst effect of any country in the world economically. It, it really went bankrupt. IMF had to bail them out, but it also had one of the least violent to, uh, episodes for countries which go through that. Compare it to Greece. It's much, much worse than Greece. And we can all see what happened in Greece. And so what happened is you've got a, some demonstrations outside their parliament house You've got uh, new political parties formed. It ends up getting government a few years later. Country starts to move on. It starts to then build out in other areas. And it's even uh, you, you got itself back on its feet to faster than almost any other country in the world after the global financial crisis and some playing back the IMF early. So it's, a, that's, it's just an example of sort of you get shocks to the system. So if you get shocks and it's a brittle system, it'll break the system. That quite often means you end up in conflict, let's say, or internal conflict between competing parties. And so that resilience and adaptability is parts of the key to peace. And that comes through in positive peace. When you actually understand it, you can see the way it all fits together. Yeah. And so Brittle, more brittle societies. I feel like we're, you know, one, we're one financial crisis on from two thousand and eight right now, and we've got some brittleness. I feel like we're more descri- characterized by brittleness than adaptability around the world, and it makes me want to ask. I want to ask like the the counterprop question around the the global index because part of the people listening to this show are going to be going, oh yeah, that sounds like a great idea, a nice index for relatively stable ideas. That sounds that sounds like a, a a healthy way to be able to sort of identify when societies are going well and as benchmarks for for progress. But others in our audience, I'll betcha, are thinking this just sounds like an argument for play at safe centrism. That the index is indexing what you know what what the middle ground perhaps would like, but it's not going. It's not actually calling for big scale change, right? So. In America, you could say that Trump, like you say in the book, that Trump and and Sanders, you know, they're both signs of social breakdown because they're, they're they they represented fairly political extremes. You could, I guess, in the in the book, you sort of, and it would have only been at the last minute before you finished your publication, mention the Black Lives Matter protests as another kind of really rattling the cage of the system. I want you to talk about this with me. You know. Um, is the index measuring sort of something that's calling for more stability, calling for more centrism, calling for 
things to stay relatively the same as they were, you know, as a new form of social democracy? And actually, is that enough in a world where there is such wide inequality? Do we need do we need something that's safe like that or do we need something that actually a Black Lives Matter movement is is great because it allows for the system to, to be changed and that's how the system changes? Like I guess the question is around how, how does change really happen? Is it through it through a shake or, or through um, stability? Well, I think it happens in uh, yeah, both ways. I don't think there's one simple answer to this. So just if we're looking at positive peace, countries which are high in positive peace have left civil resistance movements. They last for a shorter amount of time. They're more moderate in their aims. They're more likely to meet their aims and are far, far, far less violent. So that's basically taking positive peace as a framework and seeing the way civil resistance movements work within it. So they're less likely to crop up in a major way because there's less inequalities. When they do, the system's more likely to adapt to them and and take what they're saying into account. They're more moderate in their aims because they don't end up with those radically different aims. But what do you do in in a place like America that doesn't have positive peace? Well, so if we're looking at it uh, with the states, if you look at it, there's a the re- so there's a number of things going on, going on there. And look, I think the reality too, Amanda, is that there isn't such thing as absolute peace. No country's got it, nor ever will. So peace is relative to some to someone else's peace. Okay, so let's look at it in that light. So if we're looking at the states, and we can come back there, and it's a, you're seeing this in a lot of Western democracies these days in Europe. You can see it to some extent in Australia as well. People are losing trust in the system, and that comes about through a number of different different mechanisms. So if we're looking at the states, the concept of fractionalised elites, which comes up very – it's one of the things which is statistically highly associated with highly peaceful societies. And that's where the elites of the societies, they pull apart and they start to fight more and more and more around their own self-interest without trying to find where the middle ground is. And you can see that is one of the things which is happening in the States. So if we're coming back to sort of radical change or a a, a progressive change, that really comes back and depends on where a country's actually at. So once something gets frozen... It's very, very hard to make change without, let's say, a Belarus might be an example, without pulling tens if not hundreds of thousands of people out on the street having general strikes. You're not going to get rid of a government that which is really entrenched unless those kind of activities happen. They're just not going to go because of the, uh, uh, someone writes a book, are they? <laughs> Now, but on the other hand, if we're looking at it from a systems perspective, and this probably applies more to the Western democracies, like change comes around through many different things which stimulate the system simultaneously, but all societies are path dependent. And so path, in our case, means our history, the history we've come from. And somehow we, we, we live within that because it affects our mental, our moral values, uh, the way we talk to people, uh, the values we've got for what we think is appropriate for business, what we say, all sorts of things. So that's our path. So 
radically changing a path is likely to bust a society. You could see that with the Australian Aborigines when we came in here. Uh, a lot of it was good intention, let's say, at the beginning of the 20th century, but it was all about making them just like us, mm. smashing their fa family backgrounds. And uh, It's very violent, you know, too, you know. Yeah, exactly. A lot of violence associated with it. But that's about radically changing the path of a society. So the idea is what you want to do is, and you can use these eight pillars, what you do is you look at each of the pillars and you look at a, a something you do to stimulate each of them and you look at it from multiple angles. So it's how can you stimulate a society from a whole range of different angles to now nudge it in the direction you want to go. Because if you get a couple of the nudges wrong, it doesn't wreck the society you're in. Whereas if you want to radically translate it, look at uh, Mao and communism and where that ended up, that'd be another example, or even Laos, which you're speaking of earlier on. There's another example, Cambodia. That's another country I spent a lot of time in. Look at that with a radical change. Mm. And so a lot of it comes down if you can change the system and move it. Now, what works in one society is not necessarily the same as another. So you need to be context sensitive to really what those changes are. And you really need to be engaged the people who are going to be affected by the change the most to get them on board as well. Okay. And it makes me, it's interesting your perspective here, because it makes me think of, you know, people who are involved in social change campaigns might be familiar with the tool of the power analysis. Um, but in a sense, uh, where you sort of identify a person who has power and you do a map to, to, to work out how to influence them, you, what I'm hearing is a different kind of power analysis from, from a systems change perspective, which is saying there's not one side of power, there's multiple sides of power. In the case of peace, there's eight predominant sites of power. And if you're seeking to, to make systemic change in that environment, all of those eight are potential targets of opportunity, are places to shift. So it's not just move politician X or move company Y. It's actually a much more diffuse understanding of, of the system of change. And the index could be quite helpful for people on that. Yeah. Now, that's, that, that's the way we'd describe it. So there's some great examples in the book, but just Think about this, this is just and so we do away with the concept of causality, okay? And so change and causality sort of go together. And that's not that you don't want change, but like it's a, a lot of the time you here's a problem, what's the cause? Okay, all right, we'll go back and we'll fix we'll fix that cause, but a lot of the time un, unintended consequences. So the cause concept of cause and effect comes out of sort of understanding the physical world. Empiric science is based on it. Even our university system is based on it, if you get into more detail, because you could then have an experiment which was repeatable, same thing had happened each time, and now you'd be able to build a fact out of it. But societies don't work that way, okay? So if I throw an air pen up in the air, it comes down, I'll catch it in the same place every time, just because of the law of physics. But I'm speaking to you now, and you have an audience then as well. So and we'll say, this is only two people in the audience, we'll make it small. So we'll say, I say something. So the three of you are going to have different reactions and take different actions based on what happens internally inside you, okay? So it's not cause and effect. That'll depend on your background knowledge, maybe what you think about me. Could be the My path. day. 
could be your mood. Right? That's my path, right? Yep. Yep. That's another way of looking at it or your mood mood on the day. So all, all these kind of things. So when you're looking at a system, you look at this concept of uh, mutual feedback loops. And so and the concepts of sort of the societies are seeking homeostasis. They, they, they want to maintain a steady state, okay? But they're also evolving along the way. They're also evolving along the way. So they're self-modifying, if you like. So it's the movement of this concept of how do we keep homeostasis, a bit like our bodies do. If we get cold, if we get cold, we start to shiver. We get hot, we start to sweat, all about keeping the body at 97 degrees. So societies are the same. They want to, and so if you think about it, you think uh, there's an outbreak of terrorism, you can see the way the society responds to try and keep the homeostasis, okay, or steady state of the system. And you can see it with inflation. If inflation takes off, interest rates are put up to uh, you, you pull it back down again. You see the same thing with coronavirus. You look how societies are struggling now to get back to some sort of steady state. The whole emphasis on the society, and that's a product of just trying to keep the steady state through. So it's a combination of how do you we change the steady state, so it's moving in a better direction, and also a, a, a not busting it. Yeah. So one other, the final dimension of peace I want to talk to you about, you and Tolstoy Me. and Gandhi <laughs> all talk about finding the peace within, right? So there's there's these external measures of what's going on in a society, but there's also this idea of we need to find the peace within as well. And I, I'm wondering how have you found, in all this work, how have you found the peace within? Oh, for me, look, I've done a lot of meditation over the years. I've been at it for, I don't know, 45 years now. So I use that as my own, own mechanisms to sort of try and have a more peaceful soul, if you like. And I'm basically pretty happy. I'm a pretty content sort of guy. But then again, when you've got everything I've got, why wouldn't you be happy? But, <laughs> but, uh, yeah. Unless you're honest, right? <laughs> <laughs> But if we, if we look at it from look at it look at it from another way. It's like societies are influenced by the people within it, and then the structures of society back down. So peace gets reflected back down by the so structures of society and back up by the individuals within society. And so we're, all of us can be a little bit more re, re, peaceful. These are simple things too, like it's just when you go into the shop and buying someone, you buying something, you smile, uh, person in the shop and make a simple nice thanks, how's your day, you're having fun, you know, just simple things. And a lot of it's individual interactions with people. That's where your peacefulness comes from. I find in the business environment, uh, and I don't get a lot of overpowering emotions, but if I'm in a tough environment uh, with people I don't like or people who I, don't, I distrust, I just really sit there and just be assertive around the things I want, but really avoid anger or any of those other kind of negative emotions. Wow. So the meditation really works for you. Oh, in that it's yeah, allowing yeah, you to, yeah. to label and control the emotions. Yeah. Oh, yeah. Well, I don't have much of them, actually, to be honest. Wow. Okay. Everyone listening, 45 years of meditation and this is the vision. <laughs> we might be able Go to, to get control of them. 
Yeah, yeah, you can rest. <laughs> okay, so my, my final question, my final question is just to, uh, to invite you to pull back and reflect. So you've, you know, there's, you've talked a lot about the successes of career. I'm sure you've also had, you know, moments of failing forward along the way too. I'm wanting you to, to just reflect on the things that you've done. What is, you know, what is a lesson that sticks with you for those who, those who are listening, who are trying to make the world a better place? What is something from your own experience that sticks with you that you can impart to them? Sure. Yeah. There's a couple of things. See, I guess the first for me is sort of, it's the, everyone has opportunity. It just comes to us, but the window of opportunity opens and closes. It doesn't last for all that long. Most of the time, if you see that opportunity, jump through the window as fast as you can, okay? The second thing is perseverance. Now, and obviously, you need to have a pretty good product for whatever you're doing, Or, but the other thing's perseverance. If you persevere long enough, those lucky breaks actually happen, okay? And But if you don't persevere, they don't happen. So perseverance is another thing because quite often you see things this go wrong, uh, uh, a bit of a disaster, and then you might take two years digging, and this is in business, take two years digging your way out of the hole and you get to the other end of it and there's all these new things have happened and you're off and going, you're off and going and sort of, so, yeah, I think perseverance is, is just incredibly important, The as well as taking advantage of the opportunities when they come. But probably one more important piece of advice, I'd say, so what people should do is look at the things you like to do, because the things you like to do are probably the things you're best at. And what happens, and this is an experience in my life, and I've seen it again and again and again, so you get really good at something, and you're the first person to realise you're better than others, okay? Then at some later stage, other people recognise your success and now congratulate you and look up to you. And then finally, after that, the money arrives. So if you're in a job, okay, you do something really well, you realise it, then after that, your employers realise it, and then after that they give you a pay rise. Problem with a lot of people in life, and so what happens is you get your satisfaction from doing something really well, and the other things come later. So most people, and not most people, but an awful lot of people live their lives thinking, well, if I get a whole lot of money, people are going to respect me, and then I'll feel good about myself. Wrong way around. Wrong way around. I think that's a powerful lesson. To if you follow follow your passions, and then things may come. The things will come with the right support and the right space. It's certainly been the case with how I've done my weird career in the world of social change. It's been the following the passions that has has taken me to the most interesting places for sure. Well, that's what I should have opened with with the first first question. What I'm doing is just following my passion. <laughs> we had to get here for that. <laughs> cool. Well, thank you so much, Steve. That was really fascinating and I'm sure fascinating for many of our listeners to hear someone come, who's come from a different part of a different sector in society and achieved such radical change in, in across the world. So thank you for sharing your insights and lessons. Thanks, Amanda. Look, I really enjoyed the chat. Great. Have to do it again. Yeah, we will for sure. Thank you. <laughs> 
Changemakers is hosted by me, Amanda Tattersall. Remember to subscribe to this podcast to catch all our episodes. Changemakers is produced by Ben Keating and our audio producer is Jules Walkerup. Our series sponsor is the Sydney Policy Lab at the University of Sydney. They break down barriers between researchers, policymakers and community campaigners so we can build change together. Check them out at sydney.edu.au backslash policy dash lab. We are also supported by the Organising Cities Project funded by the Halloran Trust based at the University of Sydney. Like us on Facebook at Changemakers Podcast and check out changemakerspodcast.org for transcripts and updates on all our stories. We have a weekly training program called the Changemakers Organising School, a great place for anyone to drop in or come in every week for training about all things community organising. All the details and registration are on our website.